Hebrews chapter 7. Hey guys, today is as good as any Sunday of the series that we're going through in the book of Hebrews to remind ourselves that this book uses the Old Testament stories and the Old Testament individuals and characters and images to talk about Jesus Christ. Over and over again, different stories, different individuals, different ideas in the Old Testament to talk about Jesus Christ. In fact, this is the theme of our study of Hebrews, that Jesus is greater than all of that. All of that points to Jesus. Abraham is great, but Jesus is greater than Moses, the law, the angels, and all that they are. But Jesus is greater than all of that because these things point to Jesus. So this means that from time to time, we need to make sure that we understand the Old Testament story so that we can understand how it points to Jesus. Now remember, the original readers are those who have converted to follow, become followers of Jesus Christ out of their Jewish background in history. So as they read this book, they're going to recognize these stories. They're going to recognize the images and the importance of these images. It doesn't always happen with you and me, so we have to make sure that we understand them. In the end, however, we find ourselves back at Jesus Christ. And we're going to discover that the story in the Old Testament becomes richer to us because in it, through it, we see Jesus. And the story of Jesus Christ becomes deeper and richer to us because then we understand how the Old Testament leads us to Jesus Christ. In the end, all of Scripture is this great, big, God-breathed, comprehensive story that tells us about God and who He is and what He has done. God creates, we rebel, and He redeems. So we're always finding our way back to Jesus Christ. Before we start Hebrews 7.1, I want to remind us of some of how the writer of Hebrews has been shaping his book. You may remember that about the middle of chapter 5, he, uh, he begins talking about the Old Testament priesthood and the high priest. And then he raises uh, this, this name, this, this guy. He says that Jesus Christ has become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he throws that name out there. Then he hits the pause button. And then he turns to the rest of us, his readers, and he says, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I want to say, but I'm not sure I can say it all yet because I'm not sure that we've grown enough in the faith. So he spends a chapter and a half talking about how important it is for us no matter where we are on our walk with Jesus Christ, to be growing and maturing so that we can absorb these things, hear these things, understand these things more and more. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, he hits the pause button again, and we're back on play. So we're right back to this character of Melchizedek and how he speaks about Jesus Christ. So here's what's going to happen this morning as we go through this passage of Scripture. Heather and I were laughing about this this week. I am... Um, I sometimes encourage you guys, read ahead so that you've got the text in your mind, in your heart somewhere before you come to service, and that's just going to help everything make even more sense. We were thinking if you actually read ahead Hebrews chapter 7, you probably stayed home this morning. So you're the brave souls who maybe didn't read anything this week. I don't know. I don't know. It'll be good, though. Here's what's going to happen this morning. We get to know this character who appears only in one short story in the book of Genesis. 
The story is short, and the story is surprising, the way that it's structured, the way that this guy Melchizedek is talked about. And out of nowhere, he just sort of appears, and he's treated as if he is a very important person. And then he disappears. But then he becomes this big deal in the book of Hebrews, and once in the book of Psalms as well. So we're going to get to know this character that appears once in a story of Genesis. The second thing is, is that Melchizedek's role as a priest in the Old Testament, and he has this unique role, it sends us right back to Jesus Christ. God's priesthood, and Melchizedek is a priest of a certain kind, but God's priesthood, those who are of the line of the tribe of Levi and so forth, the priesthood is God's placeholder for the need for sacrifice for sin, for worship, for the facilitation of the people of God and our tithe and offering and our time with God and all of these. It's a placeholder for our need for all of that. And so Melchizedek walks into that category as utterly unique. And so his uniqueness is what sends us to the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And then the third thing we're going to see by and large, is this, that Jesus is our perfect and our better hope, our eternal hope. I think all of us know that there are plenty of imperfect and temporary, uh, disappointing places to put our hope, things that in the end will just finally fall apart and disappoint us. Jesus is our perfect and eternal hope. So God has given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to do what only God can do for his children. All right, so Hebrews chapter 7, let's begin reading here in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Melchizedek apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, or Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of all the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law, to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives." One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Amen and amen. There it is. So Melchizedek is this curious individual who, like I said, shows up in one quick but fascinating story in the Old Testament. He shows up in one passage of Scripture in the book of Psalms in which God speaks to His Son and says, I have ordained you by oath to become a priest 
after the order of Melchizedek. So he shows up again in Psalms, and that verse is quoted several times in the book of Hebrews. But now in Hebrews, this guy in his life is sort of drawn out for us so that we might understand who he is, what's important about him, and why that's important about Jesus Christ. So here are some of these details that we just read. Let's let's tease some of these out so that maybe it gives us a sense of what we just read. His name is Melchizedek, and the name literally means king of righteousness. The first half of his name in Hebrew means king. The second half of his name in Hebrew, tzedek, means righteousness. So in the Old Testament story, Melchizedek is a priest, but he is also the king of a city, by the name of Salem. His name means a king of righteousness, but he's king of the city named Salem. Salem is a word that means peace. Salem is an ancient city that will eventually become the city of Jerusalem. Now, Melchizedek shows up and becomes part of the Old Testament story inside of Abraham's lifetime. Abraham has just come back from battle. In fact, he's defeated a guy by the name of Chedorlaomer, great Old Testament name, Chedorlaomer, and a group of kings that he's gathered around him to try to squash Abraham. And Abraham and his armies have actually destroyed uh, this coalition of kings that have come against him. After the battle, Abraham visits the city Salem. He finds this guy by the name of Melchizedek, and pays him a tenth of all the spoils. Now, that's a big deal. He's defeated several kings, not just one, but several. And he's taken all of the spoil, all of the goods, all of the flocks, everything that they could gather. He takes a tenth of all of that, then goes to this guy that we've never heard of before and gives a tenth of it to him, pays homage to him. And when Melchizedek receives the tithe, he offers Abraham what looks like communion, gives him bread and wine. Now, the story is short enough that I want to just go ahead and read it together this morning. So, in Genesis 14, here's how the story goes. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shaba, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. So Melchizedek is not a pagan priest, but somehow Melchizedek is actually a priest of the one true God. And Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, the story moves on from there, but that's all that we get. That's it of Melchizedek. Now, here's what's interesting about that, how the book of Hebrews uses that story. The details that are put in there are fascinating. They go by really quick, but they're fascinating. His name, where he is, the king, he's the priest of God most high, and on and on. Hebrews will make a big deal out of that. But Hebrews will also make a big deal out of what's not in the story. He comes and goes, and he shows up without lineage. There's no genealogy to Melchizedek one direction or the other. So the details that are in are important. The details that are left out become important to the writer of Hebrews. So this issue that Melchizedek has no genealogy, he mentions this in Hebrew chapter 7. The image is, the symbolism is, 
that this priest has no beginning or end. Now, Melchizedek is just a normal human being like everybody else. He had a mom and dad, he had a beginning, and he died and he's gone. So he is, you know, he's a normal human being in that way. But he is symbolic of a priest who has no beginning or ending. And that becomes important to Hebrews about what he wants to get across about Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus is greater than all these other Old Testament things that point to him. He's greater than the normal priesthood. He's of a different kind of priesthood, one that is eternal. That's the symbolism going on there. Melchizedek is both king and priest. Priest of God most high, in fact. Now, in the normal Old Testament priesthood, if you kind of dig through those stories, you discover that no normal Old Testament priest was allowed to be a political king. So priests wielded one kind of influence over culture, kings wielded another, and priests were not allowed to wield that kind of political power. And kings were not allowed to fulfill the priestly role. So a few times in the Old Testament, these kings of Israel and Judah actually get in trouble with God because they tried to fulfill priestly roles. But we've got this interesting dude, Melchizedek, who is both priest and king. Why? Because Jesus is both priest and king. So this guy becomes important to us understanding Jesus. Part of what we read there says that Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils, a tenth of everything that he gathered from battle to Melchizedek. Now, Abraham is about as prominent and important an Old Testament character as it gets. In the pantheon of important Old Testament people, Abraham is right there at the very top. And so the point of this is, how incredible is it that Abraham paid a tenth to Melchizedek? So when we read that, we're asking, this, we're asking the question, well, who on earth is Melchizedek then? What role does he fulfill? And that's why he becomes important in Hebrews chapter 7. And then it tells us in Hebrews 7, and we read it in the story in Genesis, Abraham pays Melchizedek the tithe. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And we get this quirky little verse right in the middle of that story. It says, and, well, everybody knows that the lesser, the inferior, is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek has blessed Abraham. So again, this guy is fulfilling this really interesting role for us, speaking again of Jesus Christ. And then we get this very Old Testament-style line of argumentation. He goes on to talk now about Levi. And he says, now what we're accustomed to in our Jewish culture and tradition is that you and I, who are children of Abraham, we pay our tithe through the sons of Levi. That's how we do it. Now, all of us are brothers and sisters, children of Abraham, but we're paying to Levi the tithe. And the point that he makes is he said, but Abraham paid tithe to Melchizedek. He honored Melchizedek. And so it's as if Levi and the priesthood pays honor to Melchizedek as well. This is a very Old Testament line of argumentation, again, to get us into a sense of who this guy is and why he is so important to us. So the big idea so far about Melchizedek and the priesthood and where we're going with who Jesus is, keep this in mind, guys. 
God's priesthood, God ordained the priesthood. It's not a throwaway thing. He ordained the priesthood and the sacrifices and the feasts and the fast and the temple. And, uh, you know, you'd come and make your pilgrimages and you would make your sacrifices and you would be cleansed for a period of time. And all these things that you do are God-ordained. And this priesthood is designed to facilitate worship designed to facilitate this imagery of sacrifice for sins. They're designed to offer prayers for the people of God. But the priesthood is incurably imperfect. It's God-ordained, but it's imperfect. So in Melchizedek, what we get is a glimpse of a different kind of priesthood. And it's one that will point us to the perfect Son of God, our great high priest, Jesus Christ. That's why he's so important to the writer of Hebrews. Now, I want to read through a few more of these sections and make sense of it, and then we'll try to draw it all together and try to put together this picture of Jesus Christ that's being uh, built for us here in chapter 7. So, in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, the story continues like this. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So um, Aaron and the Levitical priesthoods, one, Melchizedek's another. For when there was a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from whom no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses had nothing to say about priests. Now, if perfection could have been attained by the God-ordained priesthood, we would not have any need for something else. But God has given us something Else. This is the train of thought here. And this point is actually being made in several different ways inside of the book of Hebrews. While the priesthood is necessary for God's work in the Old Testament, it's imperfect. The priesthood is necessary. The facilitation of worship, the work of the temple, the feasts, the fasts, all of these things, they're necessary for the work of God in the Old Testament, but they're imperfect. And because it's imperfect, it cannot complete what God needed to do. So the idea there is pretty straightforward. So we need another priest. So what Hebrew says is God draws him from another tribe. So instead of from the tribe of Levi, God draws him through the line of David and the tribe of Judah. So we keep moving now from the priesthood in the Old Testament and how it's structured to Melchizedek, this unique priest king inside of the Old Testament, and then to Jesus and who he is and what he has done for us. And so sometimes we have to cut through this and we have to, we have to see something clearly. Guys, Jesus is utterly and absolutely unique. There is no other human structure. There is no other human religion. There is no other human philosophy that accomplishes for us what only Jesus can accomplish. There's nothing else that we can follow or do that can do what only Jesus can. Jesus is utterly and absolutely unique. So we follow Him and Him alone. Verse 15, the story continues. 
This became even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, speaking of Jesus, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent just because he's a son of Levi, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus has made our high priest, he says, on the basis of an indestructible life. This is why he qualifies, so to speak. This is why he is our great high priest. His life is indestructible. Because the law couldn't make anything perfect. Something needed to happen. Someone new had to show up. And then at the end of that section that we read, this is is beautiful stuff. He becomes the basis of what the writer of Hebrews calls a better hope. There's a trickle of hope over here. There are glimpses of hope over here. But there's a better hope based on an indestructible, eternal, perfect life of Jesus Christ. And we've received it. And he says, and it's on the basis of that life and that better hope that you and I now actually get to approach the presence of God. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we actually now get to draw near to God. Another powerful piece of the life of Jesus Christ. Verse 20, let's continue to kind of put the pieces of this puzzle together. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. They just descended from Levi, so they were priests. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So we needed a lot of them because they kept dying. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. He's drawing the the connections together why he's talked about Melchizedek. We have a priest forever. Consequently, verse 25, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Another translation puts it like this. Jesus is the one who just guarantees a better covenant with God. He says, now all these other priests, they're prevented from doing that because of their death. Lots of priests would do their job well. They would do their job faithfully. But priests, normal priests, just keep on dying. And the lesson there is over and over again is, well, we need one who can facilitate, make right this relationship with God who doesn't die so that this hope is better, so that this hope is sure, instead of reliant upon these human people and these human structures and schemes that just keep falling to pieces, we need the one who is perfect and right and good. And because Jesus is alive, 
And I love this phrase. It's, it's a great old King James phrase. Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost. Everyone say uttermost. 100 extra credit points if you get to use that word in normal conversation this week, right? It's a perfectly good word. Nobody ever uses it anymore. But hang on to this thought. I want to come back to this. Because of who He is. Listen, listen to that. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. There is no other perfect salvation. There is no other way. And we'll talk about what this means to be saved to the uttermost except through Jesus Christ. And then the text says then, because He is there at the right hand of the Father, always interceding for us. You have, I have, a perfect, eternal advocate before the Father who is our great high priest. And for you, follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is always praying for you, interceding for you before the face of your heavenly Father. No other priest, no other spiritual leader, no other system can do that. Only the one who endures forever, Jesus Christ. Hang on to these thoughts because, guys, it's beautiful, isn't it? We start in these obscure places, these nooks and crannies of the Old Testament, this guy we really don't know that much about, but the writer of Hebrews thinks it's important because he wants to explain to us how important Jesus is. You see, the story in the Old Testament becomes richer to us because of Jesus. Our understanding of Jesus becomes deeper and broader and more beautiful because now we understand how the Old Testament is taking us to Him closer and closer to Jesus Christ. Verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then those for those of his people. Right? That was the system. We talked about that. The high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, goes through this elaborate process, and he has to offer a sacrifice for himself first, then he offers a sacrifice for the people. That's not to mention what happens on a daily basis over and over and over and over. While the people bring their sacrifice, the priests uh, offer the sacrifice, and the people are therefore covered for sins for that period of time, but they have to do it over and over again. The writer of Hebrews says, That's done. Because there's one sacrifice that's been made. There's one lamb's blood who has been shed. And it's done. We've been saved. Our sins have been forgiven. And it's over. It's beautiful. He had no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, what God does, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. What an incredible list about who Jesus is. 
If you write in your Bibles, underline, take notes, it might be worthwhile taking note of this list. For it was indeed fitting. that It was just right. It's the only way it would work that we would have this kind of high priest, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. This is Jesus in His eternal perfection, His moral perfection. The life that's been given to us is the result of this life, not the result of the life of even the greatest of all of the human high priests. This one is utterly different, completely unique, what Jesus has given to us. This description of Jesus is incredible. A normal high priest is human like everybody else, fallen, fallible, balding, mortal, right? That's all, even the best. The actual eternal Savior we have been given is of a different sort altogether. And this means that He accomplishes what nobody else can, what no other system can either. All of this talk about the Old Testament priesthood, the structure of sacrifices and worship and the temple, all of this talk about Melchizedek, a different kind of priest, all of it leading in a certain direction, what is all of that about? Here's how I want to ask the question. What do Melchizedek and the Old Testament priesthood do best? They point to Jesus. That's what they do best. When we understand that, and there's beauty in understanding that, but what they do best is they point to Jesus. Now, guys, in the end, I don't know if there's anything better that could be said of any follower of Jesus Christ than that. What is it in the end that Phil did best? Hopefully, it's something like he pointed to Jesus. Any follower of Jesus Christ, what is it in the end I do best? Let's hope that whatever it is, it boils down to people somehow saw Jesus more clearly because of this life. The older I get as a pastor, the longer I do this, the more seriously I take the opportunity to perform the funerals of those who have followed Jesus Christ faithfully. Because that funeral becomes an opportunity to do what? To talk about Jesus Christ. We talk about them and their life, but in the end, what their life has done is talked to us about Jesus Christ. Now, with all this talk about priests, priesthood, sacrifices, Melchizedek, and so forth, I want to talk a little bit about something that we don't discuss very often but I think is important to the structure, not just of this chapter, but to the rest of the book of Hebrews. And I want to talk about what you might call Christian religious trappings, what we might even call liturgies. Some of you have come from more structured liturgical backgrounds, and you kind of understand what I mean. There's this form and structure to the service and so forth. And here's something that I want to mention about the priesthood and about, uh, you know, liturgies. Christian religious trappings work best when they're temporary pointers to an eternal God. We do these things in order on purpose so that you and I can think more and more about God, so that you and I are given opportunity to worship God together, to pray together, to maybe see Jesus more clearly together. 
But these things work best. The systems of our worship, they work best when we understand them as temporary pointers to our eternal Jesus Christ. Every stream of the faithful Christian church has some form of liturgy, some style of worship, some style of building that are often very different from each other. A rhythm to their services. You show up and this is what happens and then this is what happens and then this is what happens and then we say the benediction and we all go home, right? We've got these structures to worship. We've got structure to how we do communion, how we do baptisms, all of these things. Every stream of a faithful Christian church has these kinds of things and they're very different from each other. On a trip a few years ago, uh, we had a chance to walk through several different kinds of churches on the Canadian coast. So you've got these, these old, old churches. One was a Catholic cathedral, and you walk in, and you immediately go, wow. And actually, it's designed to make you go, wow. It, it literally draws your attention into the heavens so that when you walk in, you're not thinking about this stuff. You're somehow, your attention is drawn into the heavenlies, into God. It was, it was a beautiful thing. It's interesting to me because I didn't grow up in that tradition, so I'm pulling all of it in, but it's, it's this form of worship that is actually represented in the architecture. We also had a chance to walk through a couple of old Puritan churches, and those were very simple, plain folk, and they were literally wood boxes. The beams were exposed because you didn't want to waste money finishing the roof. But it was very plain because what the Puritans said is what we do when we gather together is we talk about the Bible. So we didn't want all those trappings. We wanted this. And all of it is this form of worship. All of it is this liturgy, this structure about how we do things. Now, we evangelicals and we Pentecostals, we tend to think, oh, we don't do that. I've got news for you. We do. (laughs) We have our own forms of a structure for worship. This happens after that, and we do it on purpose. We worship. We read God's Word together. We fellowship. We pray with each other. We read the Word of God. We worship, right? So we've got these structures. We have liturgies as well. They're just different. Now, oftentimes, people react strongly against that word liturgy because sometimes what happens is that the pattern of worship becomes the goal and not the helper on the way to the goal. You see, the pattern of worship, the liturgy, that's not the end game. That's not not where the journey ends. It helps us get there. There are signposts along the way. We do this so that we can look more closely at Jesus Christ. So these patterns of our religion, our forms of worship, they're actually very important but it's vital that they always fulfill their proper role. Look at it like this, guys. Our forms of worship, they represent our longing for God and they shape our longing for God. One of the reasons that you and I as followers of Jesus Christ are supposed to gather together on a regular basis to worship is to encourage our longing for God. The longer we're away, the longer we are separated from the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, the colder that longing can grow. But when we gather together, these coals gather together for a fire and we explode in worship and praise. So it reveals our longing for God and it shapes, it encourages our longings for God. 
C.S. Lewis said something cool about our longing for God in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, if we find ourselves with the desire that nothing in this world can satisfy the more pro- most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. We express that when we gather. Nothing else in this world. Notice that. The, 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 the priesthood, Melchizedek, all those human structures, none of that could do it because we're pointed toward Jesus Christ. That's the only place where these kinds of longings can be fulfilled is with Jesus. So God puts worship in place with each other so that we together can turn our attention toward Him. So that together we can take ourselves closer and closer to the presence of God. So guys, the Old Testament priesthood is not the goal of the law of God and the goal of His relationship with His people. They're gatekeepers, they're guardrails, they're reminders, they're encouragers. That's the role that they play. Their primary role, as far as Hebrews is concerned, is to point us to Jesus Christ. So when they deal with the tithe of God's people, and that became an issue inside of Hebrews chapter 7, when they deal with the tithe, they are teaching the people of God the proper role of money and material things inside of our lives. Abraham collected a lot of stuff. He could have done a lot with a lot of stuff. But what he did is he knew that only 90% of it belonged to him. So he takes 10% of it and gives it to Melchizedek. It teaches us the right role of money and material things inside of our lives when we recognize that all of, that's, all of what's been given to me is God's in the first place, and this is my way of saying this is God's, right? So priests play this role. When priests perform sacrifices over and over, they're leading us to our need for one final sacrifice for sins, When priests pray for the people of God and teach the Scriptures, they're teaching us the importance of the will of God and the view of God at work inside of our lives. And then again, what keeps on happening in the book of Hebrews is that priests just keep on dying. But their death, even their death, points us to Jesus Christ. I read, this, uh, I read this fascinating article a few years ago about different funeral practices of Christian leaders in different Christian traditions through the ages. Now, who on earth finds that even interesting, right? And yet it was absolutely fascinating. There was an English and Puritan tradition for a very long time where when the pastor of the church died, when the congregation came in to, uh, to that funeral service, And you guys have all seen this. The casket is laid out in front of the pulpit and it's laid sideways like this. What they would do is they would turn it 90 degrees so that the feet of the pastor was facing the congregation. It was as if the pastor was preaching his last sermon to the church. And his last sermon was, you're going to die. Make sure you know your eternal Jesus Christ. I joke with Heather, one of these days, I'm just going to go ahead and keel over right here in the middle of a sermon. It's going to be my last sermon. She doesn't find that funny. I do. (laughs) But I love that thought, that even in the death of a follower of Jesus Christ, there's one last thing to say. You're going to die. Make sure you know Jesus Christ. So what is it? Followers of Christ do best. They point to 
Jesus Christ. Some of these pointers from the priests of God inside of chapter 7 to who Jesus is. Chapter 7, verse 28 says that humans work and live in their weakness, but Jesus has the power of an indestructible life. He said if perfection could be attained through human structures, we wouldn't need another one, but it can't be, so we need another one. If perfection is the goal, no human can reach it. God and eternal life with Him is the goal, so no human structure can get you there. And it's hard to say this too often from behind a pulpit. This is what we need for abundant and eternal life. It is the goal that we need but cannot reach on our own. It is the gift given to us by God and received by faith through Jesus Christ, the salvation that's been given to us through His Son. So humans live and work in their weakness, but Jesus does so in the power of an indestructible life. You and I need the support of praying people. We just need it. Priests, part of their role in the Old Testament was to pray for the people of God. When you read the prophets of the Old Testament, their books are full of prayers on behalf of and for the people of God. When you read the New Testament epistles, oftentimes it begins with, I pray for you, and this is what I pray for you. The New Testament apostles are constantly praying for the churches that they lead. We need these kinds of things. It turns out that Jesus, the Son of God and our great high priest, is at the right hand of God praying on your behalf. Yeah, we need to be praying for each other. But guys, there's eternal strength and comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is praying for us, interceding for us. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The assumed answer is, well, nobody can because it is God who justifies His children. Who is to condemn? The assumed answer is nobody can do that because Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You don't have to be a special person, a unique human being to follow Jesus Christ and receive His intercession. If you're a child of God, He is interceding for you and what you face, and what you walk through. His eye is upon you. His heart is with you. His prayers, so to speak, are with you. It's beautiful. We see as well another pointer in this chapter. The law provides a conditional hope, but Jesus provides a better hope, it says in verse 19. See, the law says this. The law of the Old Testament any human structure like this says the same thing. If you are able to keep the law both in your deed and in your heart, both in what you do and what you intend to do, you're fine. As long as you can do that all the time, you're fine. You can fulfill the law. The reason Priests need to get up every morning, generation after generation, and offer sacrifices all day long is because nobody can actually do that, right? 
But something new happens with Jesus Christ. The text said He did this once for all when He offered up Himself for His people. So guys, this is, this is a stunning reality about who I am and who I know I am. Because of Jesus Christ, I stand before God covered in His righteousness, not my own. Covered in His, not mine. It's a stunning thing that Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For our sake, He made Him, God made Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Remember that list of who the high priest was, who Jesus was there in chapter 7? Holy, perfect, separated from sin, indestructible. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might be given the righteousness of God. And only in Jesus Christ are we saved to the uttermost. If your translation doesn't contain that phrase, you need to have a translation that does. I just like it. Saved to the uttermost. Another translation puts it like this. Therefore, He is able once and forever to save those who come to God through Him. That cool little phrase, to the uttermost, it's a word that means two things at once in the original language. It means completely and forever. I love that. In Jesus Christ, we are saved completely and we are saved forever. What is it that can destroy the power of sin at work in our lives? There might be a handful of human schemes, there might be a handful of self-help books or ideas or spiritualistic gurus who might give you a handful of ideas where maybe you might be able to help a couple things on the margin. Nothing saves us completely but Jesus Christ. Nothing destroys the power of sin in our lives but Jesus Christ. And He saves us forever. What is it that guarantees our eternity with God? Well, it's nothing but God Himself. So when we put our trust in Jesus Christ, who the text says is the guarantor, the one who guarantees a better covenant, we're given life with Him now and life with Him for all of eternity. This is our priest, Jesus Christ. Let's pray.